Hello. Welcome to the Fast God Stuff Podcast, where we make biblical theology simple, practical, and fun so that we can love God and others more. I'm Conrad, and the very first car I drove was a Plymouth Horizon. Matchback. And I'm Jesse, and the first car I drove was a Ford Taurus with a spoiler. Fast and furious. Watch out. We're just two guys trying to follow Jesus, hanging out in the studio with our Bibles, and get We take just 30 minutes to chat about a theological topic and renew our minds with the good things of Christ. It's fast, God, stop. So, Conrad, yes, Jesse? what's on the agenda for today? Today, we're going over the, the worst, worst Christian, Christian cliches. Worst Christian cliches. Stop speaking that nonsense. Stop saying dumb stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I knew the pop was coming at the end of that. It sounded like a, a, a balloon. It well, felt so right. I guess a deflating balloon wouldn't pop at the end. It would just go at the end. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> Every subculture has its own language. Like runners have their own cliches, computer nerds, politicians, musicians, and Christians are no different. And the problem is with Christians that sometimes our cliches actually become part of our theology. So today we're going to go over the worst Christian cliches so that we can avoid being led astray by them. So start us off, Conrad. What is one of the worst Christian cliches? The one that gets me the most is when I hear Christians say, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so typically I hear Christians use this whenever there, some bad event happened and there's suffering going on. And then in an effort to show that they still have faith in God, they'll say, oh, but the Lord works in mysterious ways. Right. And I really don't know what to say, but I feel like I should say something right now. Exactly. <laughs> and the problem with this is Christians use this phrase so much that non-Christians have picked up on it and use it all the time, thinking that Christian, this is actually a part of Christian theology. So here is celebrity astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about this very thing. Uh, if you're going to say God actually is good and a quarter million people dying from an earthquake and a tsunami and, and other natural disasters, um, and God presumably has control over that and God is good, then we have to then say God works in mysterious ways, right? (laughs) But people only say that when their understanding of God fails them. Jesse, is this phrase found in the Bible anywhere? Hmm. That's a good question, Conrad. I'm going with a big fat no. So when Christians use this phrase, they believe that God hasn't given us an explanation for the question, how can God use suffering for good? Right. So first off, let's start off with the suffering side of this equation. And let's be clear. God did not cause suffering to enter this world. It was our sin that brought suffering into this world. And to address causality for a sec, just because you don't intervene doesn't make you the primary cause of someone else's actions. And Neil deGrasse gets something else wrong in this phrase. He has the wrong definition of good. So with Neil deGrasse Tyson, what do you think his definition of good is? His definition of good is just wrapped up in avoiding temporal suffering and discomfort. 
Exactly. The goal of goodness isn't to stop temporal suffering, as Neil deGrasse Tyson would have you believe. The goal of God's goodness is to eradicate suffering entirely in an eternal way for those who love God. And of course, this is done through Christ, who himself had to suffer to be able to eliminate suffering in a long-term sense. Okay, so Jesse, what is a mystery? It's when something occurs or exists, but we don't have all the information to really figure it out. Right. And so if God is a mystery, wouldn't it be cool if God revealed his answers to us so we wouldn't be a mystery anymore? And and wouldn't it be cool if God could solve this mystery for us by just giving us the information that he wants and he could just communicate this stuff to us and then maybe we could write it down and then we could write these words from God and compile them. And maybe we could call this compilation of God's word, the word of God. What you're describing would be the best. And that would be so easy. Why hasn't he done it? <laughs> so let me ask you a couple of mysterious questions. Okay, but only if you do it in song. Let's do it. Hit it. Mysterious. Does the Bible say is the root problem in the world? Sin. Oh, it's that easy? Well, what about this other mystery? Well, what does the Bible say is the solution to this problem? Christ. Oh, that's it? Okay, well, what about the mother of mysteries? Can God you suffering for our good? Sanctification. Oh, it's that easy. Well, I seem to be running out of mysteries. Bible makes it clear. Are these mysterious mysteries? So if you need a refresher on how God can turn suffering around for our good, check out the episode called Why Do I Suffer? And also check out James 1, 2 through 4 and Romans 5 through 5. So solve the mystery for us, Conrad. Okay, so here's my 15 second fast God stuff summary. The mystery is how can suffering exist if God is good? So in order for us to love, God created us with free will, but we sinned causing suffering to enter this world. But God wants to eliminate suffering entirely for those who love him, so he sent Christ to suffer and die in our place. And the suffering we face now is temporary and can be used to sanctify us through the exercising of our spiritual muscles so that we can be trained to be more like Christ. So because God wrote all this stuff down in the Bible, it is no longer a mysterious mystery. Okay, Jesse, so what is one of the other worst Christian cliches? Conrad, I just want to share something that God has laid on my heart. You have a message from God for me? Yeah, and that is that God has laid this on my heart is one of the worst Christian cliches (laughs) 
ever. <sighs> yes, I agree. I mean, the scriptures are replete with instances of God's people experiencing emotions and feelings in relation to their faith. I mean, King David, when he brought the ark into Jerusalem, he rejoiced with dancing. Mm-hmm. He got wild. He was excited. Yeah. And when the lame man in Acts 3 is healed, he can walk again. He leaps with joy as he goes running through the temple praising God. Mm-hmm. So all these examples and so many more in scripture verify one aspect of the experiential nature of Christianity. And it's this, the emotions and feelings of God's servants are real. No one who believes the Bible can reasonably deny that, right? Mm -hmm. Right. But even though emotions and subjective feelings are part of the Christian experience, they are not the totality of that experience. Mm -hmm. And they are not to be trusted as the infallible rules and guides in discerning truth. Right. And we know this because Satan is a master deceiver. And we often forget that a chief device he uses is spiritual impressions. Yeah, temptation. And we know that's true because we're warned about it in 1 John 4, where we're told, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Exactly. Okay, so Jesse, it really seems to me whenever somebody approaches me saying, I have a message from God, that basically they are at that point calling themselves a prophet and they, they are actually speaking for the Lord at that point. Well, oftentimes when Christians say that stuff, that's not exactly what they mean. I mean, usually you recognize they're not prophets. Like when they're saying that and you say you're a prophet, they'll be like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not saying I'm speaking for God. Just that he's, he's giving me a lesser message. Uh, okay. Something that sounds like it's biblical and godly that he wants me to communicate. So it's kind of from God, but kind of not from God. Exactly. So it's uh, something Somewhere in the middle. Between. Yeah. And Satan can use three tools to give these spiritual impressions that seem like they're really from God, even mm-hmm. though they might not be. And he'll often use something like sentimentalism, sensationalism, or enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. So sentimentalism confuses like fuzzy subjective feelings with the voice of the Holy Spirit. Okay. I think we're all prone to do that from time to time. Yeah. Sensationalism confuses outward demonstrations of the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. It tricks people into believing that all signs and wonders are accurate measures of truth. Right. Yeah. And then enthusiasm confuses energy and passion Mm -hmm. for truth. That's a huge one. Exactly. Because sincerity is not a legitimate test of truth yeah. because you can be sincerely, sincerely wrong. wrong. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the bottom line is it's easier for a person to trust his feelings than it is to accept the responsibility of searching out the scriptures. Exactly. Anyone can stand up and claim that God has laid something on their heart, even if that very thing violates God's word. Right. And Jeremiah wrote about people like this. He wrote, they speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. And it's actually super dumb to make our hearts the center of authority in our lives because Jeremiah has also said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Exactly. So it's not just the Holy Spirit that's trying to lead you to do good. You have competing louder voices. Like you just mentioned Satan. And then there you're talking about the sin, our sinful heart, our sinful nature, right? our, our flesh. And if somebody cuts you off in traffic, what is the first thing that you feel? Like, oh, well, if you're going by feeling, well, I guess the Lord has placed it on my heart to give the guy the middle finger. The Lord has laid it on, to, on me to lay on my horn. <laughs> and to try to run this guy off the road. Right. <laughs> and the good news is that the Christian doesn't have to wander through life tossed all over the place by fleshly emotions and subjective feelings. Right. Because God has given us a sufficient and authoritative guide. In other words, you don't have to try to figure out what God has laid on your heart. Mm-hmm. 
you can go right to the written word of God, which is the guide that all of all things that God has said to us. Exactly. Because the scriptures are infallible, indestructible, and eternal, meaning they're always contemporary. And so that also means that the written word of God reveals everything a person needs in this life to walk with God and please him. It is the Christian sufficient guide. Exactly. In 2 Timothy 3, it says all scripture is breathed out by God right. and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And here's the thing, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that has been the testimony of the people of God throughout the ages. From the prophets of the Old Testament to the apostles of the New Testament, men and women of God have always declared, this is what God says, Mm -hmm. referring to the scriptures. Right. And how do we know what God says? Hebrews 1 through 4 gives us this really great argument. It says, first, God can speak in many ways. Two, God in these last days has spoken by his son. And three, God speaks to us by his son through the Holy Spirit, speaking by the living and active word of God. So what's your 15 second fast God stuff summary? When we separate ourselves from the scripture, there's a greater probability that the things we are saying that we think are from God aren't actually from ourselves or from some other kind of voice or influence in our lives rather than God himself. Awesome. So Conrad, do you have another really bad Christian cliche? If it's God's will, it'll happen. Like if it's God's will, I'll get that job. If it's God's will, I'll get into that college. Right. So while it sounds good and theologically correct, the problem is words often have more than one meaning. And so it's kind of like when uh, people tell a joke and there's a play on words and then they switch the meaning of the word at the beginning and at the end of the joke. Right. So here's some lame ones I just found on the internet really quick. I was wondering why the ball kept getting bigger and bigger, and then it hit me. (laughs) I never wanted to believe that my dad was stealing from his job as a road worker, but when I got home, all the signs were there. (laughs) So you see what's going on. You have words that have two or more meanings, and then you swap the meaning. So that's actually what Christians do with the term God's will, but they don't realize that instead of a joke, They've actually turned it into theology, and now the joke is on them. This is a really good point because it demonstrates that you can use the same words that are found in Scripture, mm-hmm. but if you're using them in the wrong way, out of context, or without understanding how they're being used in Scripture, yes. it's still a bad cliche. Right. So when we see the word will in English, it gets confusing because there are at least seven different verb definitions for the word will and six different noun definitions. That's 13 different ways to use the English word will. Right. The word love has just as many definitions, but we're so used to using the word love that we know the different definitions of it. So here's just four quick uses of the word will as it refers to God's will. So when God says, let there be light and there was light, that's God's causal will. Right. When God says, love your neighbor, that's God's commandment will. When the Bible says God wills that none should perish, that's God's will of disposition. And when God allows you to exercise your free will and you choose to sin, that's God's permissive will. So we all know that loving tacos and loving your kids is totally different. And it's the same way with the term God's will. Right. So when somebody says, if it's God's will, I'll pass this class. Well, they are referring to God's causal will not realizing there's a ton of other ways to use that exact same phrase. So when you use it incorrectly like this, what would it lead you to believe? It removes responsibility for action. Right. So you don't really have to look for a job. You don't have to study for that test. 
Because if it's God's causal will, it's going to happen. Exactly. This is so ridiculous that I have a clip where Homer Simpson illustrates the absurdity of using the term God's will in the wrong way. So in this clip, he wants to know God's will in the sense of knowing what God's commanding Homer to do, but he swaps it out for God's causal will, which he interprets by God's either intervention or lack of intervention. So here's the deal. You freeze everything as it is, and I won't ask for anything more. If that is okay, please give me absolutely no sign. Okay, deal. In gratitude, I present you this offering of cookies and milk. If you want me to eat them for you, give me no sign. That will be done. Okay, so... (laughs) So, he confuses God allowing something to happen, which is God's permissive will, as God causing it to happen, which is God's causal will, in such a way that the event can be interpreted as a command from God, which is God's commandment will. Right. So we have three different usages of God's will combined into one. So if you confuse all these God's will into one thing, the danger is you make God responsible for our sin. Right. So here's that play on word type of joke, but done in a dangerous way. Well, because nothing can happen against God's will, then if I sin, then therefore my sin is God's will. Right. If God doesn't want me to punch you in the face, he'll stop me from doing so. Right. So you want to test this theory out right now? No, I don't. Because my prayer is that God would intercede and his will would be that your fist would be stopped. (laughs) Exactly. Why does every example on this podcast end up with me getting punched in the face? Oh, it's because God laid it on my heart. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a further distinction that we have to make with God's will when we are referring to God's commands. With a command, you have a moral choice to obey or disobey. But after you make a moral choice to obey, you now have to make a practical choice on how to obey it. Right. So, for example, there's a command in 1 Timothy 5.8 that commands you to provide for your family. And it is a moral choice to obey or disobey that command. But now the question is, how do you provide for your family? What job should you get? What food should you provide? What medicine should you give them? These are the practical choices, not moral choices. And it is at this point that most Christians will say, okay, yes, the Bible tells me moral commands. But it doesn't give me practical commands like which job to apply for. So therefore, the only other way I can get this information from God is by interpreting his will through signs or through prayer. But the thing that we miss is that God has actually given us biblical commands to make these practical choices. Listen to this in Proverbs 19.20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. So wisdom, wisdom is the how. And in this verse, God commands us to seek wisdom through advice and instruction. So do you want to do God's will? Well, then when facing a decision, make sure you are obeying one of God's moral commands, such as love your neighbor as yourself and provide for your family, and then obey the second moral command of seeking wisdom. Exactly. And you do this by seeking out experts, people who are wise in that field, when you are trying to sort through the practical choices. So yes, one choice might be wiser than the other, but even if you pick the one that might not have worked out as well, you still didn't sin. It's because God doesn't command us to guess right, only that we act right. So here's my 15-second Fast God Stuff summary. 
The cliche of, if it's God's will, it's going to happen, confuses three different usages of the term will. And it ultimately removes our responsibility, and it also excuses us from disobeying the command to seek wisdom. So, God ultimately commands us to love and seek wisdom to know how best to love God and others more. Exactly. So, Jesse, what is another one of the worst Christian cliches? Uh, I don't know, Conrad. Let me pray about it. Oh, okay. (laughs) And that way, God can lay it on your heart. So, let me pray about it, or I'll have to pray about it, is another one of those really bad Christian cliches. And it sounds so spiritual. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And we should start by asking, well, what is prayer? I mean, after the way of salvation, the theme most common in the scripture is the nature of true praying. Mm -hmm. Jesus spends a lot of time talking about prayer. And so prayer is this act of forging a connection between two specific points, our human needs and the resources of God offered to us through Christ. Right. So prayer identifies the desires of the heart and expresses them to God. So Christian prayer embraces God's will as revealed in scripture for its rule or guide. And the goal is for us to ask for things in harmony with what God wants for us. So here's the thing. Prayer should not be used as a gentle or cowardly way of saying no to something. And who as a Christian hasn't done this? Somebody comes up to you and asks if you would consider working in the nursery. (laughs) I had that exact same scenario in my head. (laughs) (laughs) And so you say something spiritual like, "Um, yeah, let me pray about that. Yeah. And it sounds really good, but you know, in your heart, all you're doing is saying, I just need some time to delay and hopefully they'll forget that they've asked me or a long enough period of time will go by where I can somebody just else of, volunteers for exactly. it and they choose somebody else. Or I'll be like, I will text them later and say no, because that's easier than saying no to their face exactly. right here. Yeah. That is not what prayer is for. Yeah. So we definitely shouldn't use this cliche as a way just to get out of stuff. Prayer also should not be used as an excuse to avoid decision-making and look for signs of God's quote unquote will. Yes. Because like we were just talking about, God is not some kind of magic eight ball that we shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. Right. He is a good God who gives us brains, shows us the way of obedience in the scriptures, and invites us to take risks for him. Sometimes I think we could just become obsessed with God's will because we have too many choices. Oh, totally. So in many ways, our preoccupation with the will of God is really kind of this middle class phenomenon that's only come about over maybe like the last 50 years. Oh, yeah. Because we think that choice makes us happy. But there comes a point where we would actually be better off with fewer choices. Oh, I I totally agree. In countries or in history past, when you were trying to obey the command to like provide for your families, your options were limited and you just had to go with whatever job you could get. And historically, your job was whatever your parents were or you were a farmer or hunter gatherer. It's only in the wealthiest country in history to say, oh, maybe I want to be a business major or communications or go into f- photography or music. Right. It's the number, the sheer number of practical choices that we have introduces this concept of, well, I'm going to go with whatever job makes me happier right. rather than just, I just need to get some employment. And sometimes our desire to pray for every little choice or decision is not necessarily indicative of a heart desperately wanting to obey God, but it's more about our head spinning with all the choices we feel like we need to make yeah. and making every little thing into a big thing. Mm-hmm. Because obsessing over the future is not how God wants us to live because showing us the future is actually not God's way. Right. His way is to speak to us in the scriptures and transform us by the renewing of our minds. 
His way is wisdom and not just more information. Right. So we really should stop looking for God to reveal the future to us and remove all risks from our lives. We should start looking to God, his character, his promises, and in seeing who he is, have confidence to take the risks for his glory. Yeah. The scriptures do not command us to find God's will for most of life's choices, nor do we have any passage instructing us on how that can be determined. Mm -hmm. Just not in the Bible. We often persist in searching for God's will because decisions require thought and they sap our energy. It's tough to make choices. Yeah. As Christians, we sometimes say things like, I need to pray about that as a way to seek relief from the responsibility of decision-making. And we feel less threatened by being passive rather than active when making important choices. Right. And I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't pray about things. God wants us to come before him Mm -hmm. as a good heavenly father with all of our requests. But we also need to be careful about how we use that phrase. Right. If we're using it as an excuse not to come into the scriptures, do the hard work of seeking out counsel and wisdom. Exactly. That's important that we do not neglect the responsibility that God has given us right. and shroud it in this mystery of, well, I'm just going to pray about it and hope that something happens. Right. So when it comes to like all those daily decisions that we've been talking about, even like life's big decisions, God expects and encourages us to make choices confident that he's already determined how to fit our choices into his plan, into his sovereign will for our lives. Right. So ultimately in every decision, God's will is that we live holy, set apart lives. That's why Paul writes to the Thessalonians, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. sanctification. Yep. Exactly. So I really believe that God guides us into decision-making. If, if God opens the door for you to do something that you know is good and necessary, just be thankful for the opportunity and get after it. So if somebody asks you to come and spend some time like putting babies to sleep in the nursery, and if that is something that you want to do, why pray about it? Go ahead and accept it right there on the spot. Because sometimes this happens in reverse where Christians who are fearful to ask somebody to do something will say, would you pray about serving in this way? Would you pray about seeing if you might be willing or able, if it's God's will for you to play guitar on Sunday mornings? So we both, on both sides of that, need to get better about not using that phrase. So what's your 15-second Fast God Stuff summary? So there are certainly legitimate times to come before the Lord in concentrated prayer, to pray about something, to pray for somebody. At the same time, this phrase, let me pray about it, and how we use that phrase is often dangerous because what it does is it removes our responsibility for action, or we use it as a smokescreen to get out of doing something while at the same time sounding like we're really holy. And those are the worst Christian cliches. Now, something we didn't plan on when we came up with today's episode was having a common thread throughout the worst Christian cliches. And I don't think it's chance that the worst Christian cliches are actually products from the same core problem. And the problem is this. Christians don't know their Bible well enough to know that it provides all the answers and all the commands we need to live a life pleasing to God. And that's God's goal for us. Now, God doesn't give us information so that we can live an easier life here on earth or to remove the possibility of our decisions making our life less comfortable here on earth, but the Bible is sufficient to live a life pleasing to God, a life where we love God and others more. So when you take the Bible out of the equation, you are forced to replace it with something else and then come up with a cliche to hide the switch. So God works in mysterious ways swaps out the Bible with ignorance disguises faith. God laid it on my heart, swaps out the Bible with personal feelings or opposing temptations. If God's will, it'll happen, swaps out the Bible with signs. And I'll have to pray about that, 
swaps out the Bible with a misuse of prayer. So when you hear others use these cliches, we came up with a little jingle you could sing to them. If only God told us his will, we wouldn't be searching for it still. If only we had his commands, in a way we could hold in our hands. If only God shared his ways, in writings or essays. If only God told us his goals, in some letters or some scrolls. Oh, is that what the Bible is for? To know about God, his ways and more. That's all the bad Christian cliches we have time for today. Tell a friend about this episode and remember to subscribe to the Fast God Stuff podcast. Fast God Stuff is a proud member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. And please check out fastgodstuff.com for all kinds of content that will help you answer mysterious mysteries. Until next time, love God. Love others. That's That's it. it.